so at this point in the retreat, we've all had a lot of interviews together. And I found myself wondering today, how many times turkeys have come up in the interviews? We seem to be noticing that our minds are quite like the turkeys. They strut around and they're a bit possessive and they gobble incessantly. And they're kind of pushy and every now and then they rattle their feathers on the ground and sometimes they even leave little gifts here and there (laughs) that we manage to step in. So, you know, so it's possible, I think, that Maybe in another hundred years as Buddhism really settles into the West and there's the spirit rock teachings that there will be a list that has turkey mind on it, you know. I don't know. So I thought I'd start the real part of the talk tonight with a poem from Dana Falls. It's called Awakening Now. Why wait for your awakening The moment your eyes are open, seize the day. Would you hold back when the beloved beckons? Would you deliver your litany of sins like a child's collection of seashells, prized and labeled? No, I can't step across the threshold, you say, eyes downcast. I'm not worthy. I'm afraid and my motives aren't pure. I'm not perfect, and surely I haven't practiced nearly enough. My meditation isn't deep, and my prayers are sometimes insincere. I still chew my fingernails, and the refrigerator isn't clean. (laughs) Do you value your reasons for staying small more than the light shining through the open door? Forgive yourself. Now is the only time you have to be whole. Now is the sole moment that exists to live in the light of your true self. Perfection is not a prerequisite for anything but pain. Please, oh please, don't continue to believe in your disbelief. This is the day of your awakening. So all of our talks in these recent days have really been about what is liberative in our lives and in our experience. And we're looking really at the fruit of that cycle of transformation and change that we've examined so carefully over these weeks of this retreat. And over and over again, as we look at what brings freedom, we see the relief that comes when we see that which is true, when we see just what is true in our own being. So I wanted to tell you a bit of a story tonight to lay the groundwork for the talk. It's a story comes from a collection of Zen koans, and it's a story about a young woman whose name was Chi Yen. And she lived with her parents 
and she grew up with her cousin, whose name was Chow. And they had always thought, as they were growing up together, that they would get married someday. And they really believed this, and they believed, the two of them, that they were in some way betrothed. But, as things would have it, when they grew up, there was a man in the village who had a lot of money and considerable prestige, and he asked for the hand of the young woman, and her father agreed. And she was really, really distressed and very troubled. And Chao, the young man, was so angry that he resolved to leave and go somewhere else. And so he got a boat ready for his journey. And, and then one night, after, without saying goodbye to anybody, he got in the boat and headed up the river. But just in the middle of the night, he, as he had gone a little ways, he heard a voice calling to him and said, Wait, wait, it is I. And he saw a girl running along the bank of the boat, and it was Chien. And he was, of course, utterly delighted. And she leaped into the boat, and they proceeded up the river to a province far upstream. And they lived there for a while, for about six years, the story says, and they had a couple of children. And, but you know how that is. She couldn't quite forget her parents and, so, and longed to see them again. So finally she said, you know, I'd really like to go back and see my parents. And her husband, being quite understanding, said, great, we'll go. And they got a boat prepared and packed up the kids and their belongings and began to move downstream. And they got to the um, land that belonged to her family. And so the husband went up to talk to the father and he left her alone in the boat. And her father welcomed the young man with all kinds of joy and said, how much I've you know, been longing to see you, and I was so afraid that something had happened to you. And, and um, the young man answered, he said, I'm distressed by the kindness of your words, and I've come actually to ask forgiveness. And the father didn't seem to understand, and he said, I don't know what you're talking about. And the young man said, well, I was afraid that you were angry with me for running off with your daughter. I took her with me to live in the northern province. Which daughter was that? The father asked. And the young man said, your daughter, Chen. And he began to, you know, think, what's going on here? And the father said, what are you talking about? You know, my daughter, Chen, has been here all these years. And she's been sick in bed and... and you know, just has been here. And the young man, Cho, said, no, that's not true. She's been with me. You know, she's been my wife, and we have children, and we came just to seek your pardon, and, you know, don't make fun of me like this. And they kind of glared at each other, as you can imagine a couple of men would at that point. And, and then, um, probably women too, actually. That's not really a sexist remark. And then the father got up, and he said, you know, come and see. And he took the room to where the sick girl was lying, and 
She had her eyes closed. She was very thin and very pale. And the father said, she can't speak. You know, she can't speak. And, but she can't understand. And, and so her father said to her laughing, he said, Chow tells me that you ran away with him and that you gave birth to two children. And the girl looked at him and smiled but stayed silent. So then the young man said, well, come down with me to the boat. See, come see, you know. And I can assure you that your daughter is in the boat. So they went down to the river, and there indeed was the young wife waiting, and she bowed down to her father and asked his pardon. And, and uh, her father said to her, well, if you're really my daughter, I have nothing but love for you, but um, there's something I don't understand, so please come up to the house with me. So they, the three of them start to walk towards the house, and as they get to the house, they see coming down the path the sick girl who had not left her bed for many years. And then as the two women approached each other, nobody ever could tell how, the story says, they suddenly melted into each other and became one body, one person, one chin, more beautiful than before and showing no sign of sickness or of sorrow. So the question of the story is, which one was the Tu Qian? She said, I never knew that I was at home. I saw Chao going away in silent anger, and I dreamed that I ran after his boat. But now I cannot tell which was really I, the I that went away in the boat or the I that stayed home. So... Here we are. You've been practicing for lots of weeks now. And you've seen a lot. And we've been hearing about it, you know, openings of the heart that you didn't really expect and memories of old wounds that some of which you knew about and some perhaps not or hadn't thought about for years and memories of old actions of your own, good ones and bad ones and You've sat with the truth of the body and its varied conditions and the agitation of the mind. And you've sat with places of great space and stillness and with concentration and focus that sustained itself for periods of time. And over and over, you've turned in your practice toward that which we usually shy away from. And you've done this, all of you, with great courage and great dedication and discipline. And you've seen what is wise and good in yourself. Some of it may be unknown to you before this. So over and over again, you've turned toward all that is true in your own being. So the question always is, how do we hold all of this together, all of these many many seeings that you've had. What is the truth of your own being? What is the truth of my own being? So Vipassana is both a wisdom and a purification practice, as we've mentioned a number of times. And it's not surprising that, given not much else to look at for the last four or eight weeks, you have seen all these different things about yourself, all of the anger and fear and 
neuroses and all of the places where we've injured others and where we've been injured ourselves. So it's not too surprising sometimes that we wonder, you know, this neurotic mind of mine, this, this seems pretty crazy. How could it really wake up? You know, does my mind, maybe everybody else's mind, that's usually the assumption, does my mind have that potential to wake up, the potential of full awakeness? Maybe everyone else at the retreat has the ability to touch in on their own Buddha nature, their own awakeness, but not me. It's usually not me. So there's another person I want to introduce to this conversation as well. This is a story actually from the suttas of a young man whose name was Ahimsa, which means not harming. And he was a very wonderful and very pure young man. And he was training in a spiritual school, probably like an extended Vipassana retreat, you know, many, many months or years of practice and training. And he was such a skilled practitioner that he quickly became the favorite of the teacher. And, of course, as often happens under those circumstances, this aroused a lot of jealousy on the part of the other students. And so they began a plot to bring him into disfavor with the teacher. And they told the teacher that Ahimsa was sleeping with his wife. And the teacher said, no, never, not Ahimsa. And the students said, yes, yes, and, and they kept the rumor going. And you know how that is when rumors get going, and it kind of kept eating at the teacher's consciousness. And after a while, he began to believe it, and he could see in Ahimsa little things that he thought meant that this was true. And finally, he became very angry, and he decided to take revenge on Ahimsa, and he called him in and he said, I have a very special teaching for you. And Ahimsa, being a really good student, said, yes, you know, tell me. And, and he said, I want you to go out and I want you to kill 1,000 people. This is not normally what spiritual teachers ask of their students. It's, it is a warning about spiritual teachers as well as other things. And Ahimsa said, no, I can't do that. It's against all the precepts. But the teacher kept asking, and after a while, because Ahimsa was a good student, even though he didn't understand it, he trusted his teacher. And he said, okay. So many of you know the story. He went out, and he began to kill, and he became effectively a serial killer. And because he kept a collection of the fingers of his victims, his name changed to Angulimala, which means a necklace of fingers. Finally, one day, as he was getting pretty close to a thousand, he was in the forest looking for another victim. He'd thought about killing his mother, the story tells. And um, the Buddha came along, except, of course, he didn't know that it was the Buddha. And so he thought, aha, mom is off the hook. I'll take care of this guy. And he began to follow him, and he chased after the Buddha. And the Buddha kept walking slowly along with his alms bowl, and Ahimsa began to run after him, and the Buddha walked slowly. And no matter how much Ahimsa ran, the story goes, it's a good story, the, he couldn't catch the Buddha. And finally, 
he called out. He said, stop, old man, stop. And the Buddha turned toward him and he said, I stopped a long time ago. When are you going to stop? And in that moment, something shifted for Ahimsa and he stopped. And he went on to become a monk and it's said that he became, in fact, fully enlightened. So how can this be? It makes my mind and probably yours look pretty small, you know. How could a serial killer be accepted by the Buddha and become fully enlightened? And who is real? Which one of those is real? Ahimsa or Angulimala or the monk? There's really three of them in that story. How do we keep our hearts open to this entire catastrophe of human existence with all of its wounds and difficulties as well as its joys. So last night in her talk, Heather mentioned forgiveness again, and I wanted to say a few things about it because it's so key to the openness of the heart and the mind. There's a wonderful quote from Henri Nouwen, which I often read when I'm talking about forgiveness. He says, forgiveness is the name of love practiced among people who love poorly. The hard truth is that all of us love poorly. We need to forgive and be forgiven every day, every hour, unceasingly. That is the great work of love among the fellowship of the weak that is the human family. Forgiveness is the name of love practiced among those who love poorly those who love others poorly, and those who love themselves poorly. And none of us, none of us is very skilled at love. In the Metta Sutta, the opening lines of the Metta Sutta are, this is what should be done by one who is skilled in goodness. I always love it that it says that. I like to say it when I recite the sutta. And the implication is that this and and all of its forms, metta and all of its forms, which includes forgiveness, is something that we can learn and something that we can train in. So we can develop the skill of goodwill just as you train to play the piano or play tennis or develop muscles at the gym. It's a practice. And forgiveness is a very particular and very difficult form of loving kindness. And it's difficult because of the woundedness that often precedes the need for it. I've had students come in and say, you know, forgiveness. I think that's the other F word. They don't like the word forgiveness because it's so often, as we've been raised, implies that sense that we're supposed to forget. You know, that phrase, forgive and forget. And that if we forgive someone, we have to pretend that something didn't happen, you know, and that it's, it's no longer true. And so it implies ignoring the pain and it implies denial and repression rather than truth. And a lot of questions come for people around it. You know, can I protect myself if I forgive someone else? And what do I do about the anger that's still there? And How do I forgive myself? I can forgive other people. That actually seems a little easier, but forgiving myself is really hard. Or I'm hoping that he or she will change if I just forgive them. Is that okay? You know, 
somehow the forgiveness is magic. Or maybe we worry about, I think I'm waiting for him or her to change, and then I'm going to forgive them. So one of the people that I think always inspires me when I think about forgiveness is the Dalai Lama, because he's provided such a great model of, of a being with a vast and open heart, along with many of his followers, who have had a great deal to forgive and their experiences with the communist Chinese. And they worry a lot, and there's so many moving um, letters and statements that their hearts are going to close towards their jailers and their torturers. My greatest fear, one of them said, was that I would lose my compassion. And His Holiness, if you ever get a chance to listen to him, he often refers to my friends the enemy. So that sense of friendliness that he holds, even towards these people who are very difficult. It's said, one of the things I like to remind us on, it's it's possible I mentioned this the other night, that the Dalai Lama is believed by the Tibetan Buddhists to be an incarnation of the Bodhisattva of compassion. A Bodhisattva is a vast, vast being who is interested only in the ending of suffering for all other beings. And, you know, I don't know, I don't know that he knows that he is that, but he does use it as a job description, you know, that, that being a bodhisattva of compassion. And so that's really, as we take on these practices, that's our job description as well. You know, can we practice having the open heart? It's very, very hard. But not forgiving is also really a problem. And I'm very fond of the Nelson Mandela quote in which he says, not to forgive is like drinking a glass of poison and waiting for your enemies to die. So think about that, you know. And we do poison ourselves when we don't forgive. We poison ourselves by telling the stories of how we've been wounded or the bad things that we've done ourselves over and over and over again. And so there's a way that when we tell stories like that over and over again, it it poisons the mind and the heart and we stay caught. And there's studies that have been done actually that show that your blood pressure literally goes up when you do that kind of thing and you have higher levels of stress hormones in your body. So the skill of forgiveness is not to forget what has happened to yourself or to another. The skill is to remember fully and forgive. To remember fully and forgive. And our good friend Jack Kornfield likes to say that forgiveness is giving up all hope of a happy past. (laughs) So how do we do this? How do we have a heart that's big enough to remember fully, especially our own pain, and, and then big enough to hold the pain of the world? And how can we, like the Dalai Lama, take on such a, a job description of being a bodhisattva for other beings? And we talked last night, Heather did, quite wonderfully, about compassion, which is one of the practices that really brings us to be able to do that, that way of being with an open heart in the presence of pain and suffering, so that the heart 
quivers, you know, and the word karuna actually means the quivering of the heart. You know, how can we be like, you know, Guan Yin, one of the mythic beings in Buddhism who sees the suffering of the world, or Chen Rezig, who's also the Bodhisattva of Compassion, who sometimes has a thousand arms, and in the hand of each of the arms there's an eye, and tears come down from that eye. So those eyes, many, many eyes that see the suffering and weep. Wisdom and compassion are said to be the wings of our practice. Let's think of it kind of like this. And mindfulness helps us to develop both of them. Both of them. And compassion, as we said last night, is that willingness to sit immediately with pain, mine or that of another another being, and the ability to be with pain and that of others is actually what also brings us the ability to forgive. If we can't be fully present with our pain or with that of another, we can't really forgive so well. So the practice of vipassana, the word vipassana means to see clearly, is what begins to develop that skill of, and you've done it, hour after hour, sitting there and being sometimes just present. Sometimes it didn't seem like you were doing so much, you were just struggling to be present, but you were with the pain and the suffering, really allowing your hearts gradually, gradually, to open to your own particular situation. So in talking about forgiveness, it's really important to say that forgiveness is not in any way wussy. Sometimes it means that you see that a really strong stand is needed. It's really important not to confuse forgiveness with a lack of boundaries. And it's deeply true that you can keep someone out of your living room and out of your life and still allow them to be in your heart. Very, very important to see that. And that ability to allow difficulty into the heart is the ability that develops with compassion. And this compassion The wonderful thing about compassion is it's compassion for our own wounds, it's compassion for the wounds of others, and it's compassion for the woundedness of those who have hurt us. So as we are able to see this, we can see the the confusion and the fear and the pain of someone who has been sometimes quite unskillful with us, quite even damaging, and we begin to have some sense that this person was acting out of their own fear or perhaps out of their own delusion, and they might be tragically misguided, but most people are trying to do the best that they can. And we also begin to see that about ourselves, that we begin to see, oh, how scared I was or how hurt I was, and that's what this difficult and unskillful action that I did came from. Beginning to do this requires a really, really big perspective. It takes all of the spaciousness 
that we've been finding in our practice in recent weeks to open the heart and to let go of the reactivity that is so often there. It's said, just in case you'd like to know, you remember all those galaxies I keep talking about up there in the sky? So it's said that a bodhisattva in the palm of her hand can hold an entire galaxy. So think a few billions of stars and you have the size of the hand of a bodhisattva. So that's pretty big. You know, we're talking about a really big being and a really big heart. So it takes a while to get there. This is not a fast process. And the, and the practice of forgiveness and the, and the act of forgiveness and the art of forgiveness can take months, weeks, months, sometimes even years to develop. Sometimes I often tell people when I'm teaching forgiveness practice that maybe as you do this practice, what you have about someone that hurt you, or even sometimes about yourself, is the idea that you would like someday, out there in the future, way out there in the future, to be able to forgive that person. And that's as good as it gets when you start. But that's a great start, because that begins to create that seed of intention. I'd like to be able to forgive that person. I'm not there yet. But my intention is to move in that direction. It can take periods of struggle and experimentation. It can take times when we find the forgiveness and we think, "Ah, I've got it, my heart's open, and then it closes down again and you realize you haven't finished and you haven't gotten it quite right. And sometimes, of course, what it means is it means that we have to look at that in ourselves which is remarkably similar to the person who hurt us. And of course, if we're dealing with our own forgiveness, we're looking at the shadow parts of our being. You know, where are we like the person who hurt us? And, and, but the thing that's true about that is that as we begin to see, oh yeah, I have that kind of anger in me or that kind of meanness, then we also begin to understand where it comes from. And we have a sense, you can take what you've learned about it in you and begin to understand the other person. For those of us of a certain age in the room, you might remember Pogo. And Pogo, who was this odd little being who lived in the Okafinoki swamp, if I remember rightly, um, said, I think he was a possum actually. He said, I have met the enemy and they are us. You know, it's a very wise teaching. So and it's a very helpful teaching because when we don't see that place where we have in our own being what we don't like in the other and what we feel has hurt us, it just prolongs the struggle. It prolongs the war. It creates an us and a them. And as long as you have an us and a them, you have a war. One of the things I've always loved about the teachings from Aikido, and I'm not an Aikido student, but I've always loved that sense of this vast vision in which there is no self and no other, 
and that as you prepare to meet the energy coming toward you from your opponent, you get really, really big, so that as the energy comes in, everyone, opponent and yourself, moves to a safe place. So everyone is kept safe. There's no us and there's no them by holding it in that big way. There's safety for the whole system. So really what we're doing here is kind of the Aikido of the mind and the heart. It's really when we're wounded and when we've been hurt, moving everything towards a safe place and not identifying either as the victim or as the victimized so that we're not staying in that place of self and other. And this is where healing comes in. Here's another poem, lots of poems tonight, from Alice Walker. She says, Looking down into my father's dead face for the last time, my mother said, without tears, without smiles, without regrets, but with civility, good night, Willie Lee, I'll see you in the morning. And it was then that I knew that the healing of all our wounds is forgiveness that permits a promise of our return at the end. Sometimes this healing takes place without any outer reconciliation. Some of you may be struggling with wounds that came long ago and many of the participants are no longer living. Sometimes the other participants are not safe to be with, and so you have to do whatever work you do by yourself. And sometimes there is a step that involves reconciliation and actually making peace with the other. Nelson Mandela again comes to mind because um, some of you probably know this, that after he was released from prison and when he became the president, he invited one of the guards one of the people who had been his guard in the prison, to attend the inauguration as his guest. A real act of forgiveness and reconciliation. So, how do we do this? You know, we've talked about some of the ways to do it, and and here we are with all of these difficult things, the, the acts that we've done, the need for forgiveness, the things that have been done to us, We're seeing all of that. We're seeing all of our many parts and aspects and dimensions, you know, the good, the bad, the ugly, over these weeks. And um, as I said earlier, also the wise and compassionate and open-hearted and the contracted and the unskillful and the mean. And, you know, who can um, hold? And we have a young woman who wanted to be with her lover and, ran off down the river and then the other part that stayed at home or the young and dedicated student who really believed in harmlessness and then the ability to get utterly caught and to become a killer. So one of the things that came to mind as I thought about all of this was remembering that wonderful story from the the mythic material about the time of the the life of the Buddha. And you remember after he had his enlightenment experience and 
um, he was walking down the road and somebody came up to him and thought he looked kind of shiny and special and said, you know, who are you? And, you know, a magician, a wizard, a god, and the Buddha kept saying no. And finally the Buddha said, I am awake. I am awake, really looking at awakeness. I'm missing a page here. Here we go. So our friend Ajahn Sumedho teaches, he says, this moment is like this. This is the way it is. In this moment, this is the way it is. The Buddha knows the Dharma. The Buddha, the awakeness, knows what is, what is deeply true in this moment. In every moment, there is the one who knows, there is awareness, there is mindfulness, and there is what is known. Awareness knows. There's no judgment, there's no comment, there's just the knowing and the object of the knowing. Seeing, hearing, tasting, touching, smelling, mental objects, and the knowing of them. There's a level at which it's very, very simple. It's just awareness and the object of the awareness. So this awareness is what can hold all of these experiences. And it's interesting, isn't it? Because even when the mind is contracted and filled with pain and resistance and hating this practice and thinking we're all crazy to be here for four weeks or six weeks or a month or whatever, but the awareness knows the contracted mind. And Ajahn Sumedho would probably laugh if you told him that, and he would say, oh, the contracted mind is like this. And it's like this. The memory of an unskillful action is like this. So you've practiced all these many days coming home over and over and over again to yourself, coming home over and over and over again to the present moment. And you've come back over and over again to that which was known in your own being and to that which was new and just discovered. And you've come home to the body, you've come home to the mind, you've come home to the heart. So of all of these many things that you've come back to, which ones are true? What is the true Qian? Which is the true Angulimala or Ahimsa? So I thought of something that had happened for me a couple of years ago. We were on the big island where I live some of the time and um, it had been really wet and cold and we'd gone over to the warmer side of the island to visit with some friends and get some sunshine. And the friend we were visiting is a really good swimmer. And um, she said, oh, I want you to see this wonderful place where there are all these fish. You know, we're going to go snorkel. And so we said, it's out there. So we set out and um, it was kind of choppy and so it was not so great for snorkeling anyway and it was a little on the cold side and as we started to swim the wind began to pick up and push offshore. 
And, you know, I'm a pretty strong person and I consider myself to be reasonably athletic and I've done a fair amount of swimming. So I wasn't particularly worried, but I began to get cold and I began to get tired and I began to get scared and then I began to get anxious and none of that contributes to um, a lot of success in the snorkeling world. And my daughter was swimming with me, my older daughter. And at some point I let her know that I was beginning to get pretty scared and she said, don't worry mom, I'll be right here with you. Actually makes me a little weepy just to talk about it. And so she swam with me and then it was apparent that it was too choppy to see the fish so we began to turn around. By this time we'd hooked up with our friend and I was getting tireder and tireder and then the friend said, let me tow you in. Well. <laughs> I was really kind of insulted and then I thought, wait a minute Mary Grace, this is really stupid, you know, let's let her tow you in. And so I did. And it was a very profound teaching, which is the true me? The one who is weak and needed help? Or the one who is strong and healthy? Or both, you know? This being human you know, it's very, very amazing. You know that poem from Rumi who says, this being human is a guest house every morning, a new arrival. And he goes on, he says, be grateful for whoever comes because each has been sent as a guide from beyond. Really inviting us to hold all of these different parts that come toward us, you know. There's so much welcome them all. None is a mistake. This is not a practice in which you get out of being human. It's not a practice in which you get out of the body. It's, as Jack used to like to say to us when I was sitting, he would say it's an in-the-body experience, not an out-of-the-body experience. You don't get out of your past. You don't get to escape from your personality. And I, John Sumedho, would say, ah, this is the way it is. And this is where wisdom and compassion come together in our practice. Several times in recent days, I've mentioned clear comprehension in interviews, that little window in mindfulness that allows us to perceive what's the skillful response to this particular moment. You know, and so really that's the question as we encounter all of these different parts of ourselves. What's the skillful response? How do I hold it? What will help me to take the next step towards waking up and towards deeper compassion? We do transform, you know. I wouldn't be sitting up here, I don't think any of us would, if we didn't feel that there was some possibility of your waking up, of bringing great transformation to your lives. There's a really good reason for doing these long retreats and doing all of the hard work that you've been doing for many weeks. And we don't ever leave anything behind. Chien could not leave her home behind. There was something missing in her life with her husband. And you know, Angulimala, one of my favorite parts of the story, is that even in the years when he was a monk, sometimes he would be in a village where they were still angry with him, of course, and they would throw stones at him. 
And the Buddha said, bear it, you know, that this was part of the reverberation, part of the karma from his past. It was still there, you know. And so maybe for you, something has been long asleep and has waked up on this retreat. Or maybe you've seen something difficult, actions towards yourself or towards others that require that enormous opening of the heart and inclusion that is forgiveness. Or maybe what has come up is some utterly new perception, you know. Really, for each of you to ask yourselves, what has come up during this time? What can my awareness be spacious enough to include it? The path, you know, Gil last, last week said so wonderfully, it's not very mysterious. It's not. It's pretty simple. It's pretty straightforward. And it really instructs us just to do it, to give our attention to our experience, to allow it and not to push it away, to be still enough to see the things that we don't usually perceive. So I realized today, I said to Gil, kind of laughingly, I said, I think the answer to the question of the koan, which is the true qian, is yes. And which is true, Angulimala or Ahimsa? Yes. And which is the true you of all of the things that have come up? Yes. Awareness can hold it all. The Buddha is always that which knows the Dharma. So I want to end with a reading from Ajahn Sumedho, rather remarkable kind of prose poem about awareness. He says, Awareness is your refuge. Awareness of the changingness of feelings, of attitudes, of moods, of material change and emotional change. Stay with that because it is a refuge that is indestructible. It is not something that changes. It is a refuge you can trust in. The refuge is not something that you create. It is not creation. It is not an ideal. It is very practical and very simple, but easily overlooked or not noticed. When you're mindful, you're beginning to notice it's like this. So let's sit for just a moment. Awareness is your refuge. It's very practical and very simple, but easily overlooked or not noticed. When you're mindful, 
you're beginning to notice. It's like this. So thank you very much for listening. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.